Learn Persian with Chayan Conversation, Growing Up Iruni interview with Sarah Madon Bigi, owner of the award-winning Nixta Taqueria in Austin, Texas. Sarah Mardambegi, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Leila June. Yeah, so Sarah is the co-owner with her husband of one of the most popular restaurants in Austin. It's called Nixta, and if you haven't heard of it yet, you will. It's been in the top restaurants in the New York Times, right? And Amu Bernie, Bernie Sanders has been there, and Hathaway's been there. Basically, any celebrity that comes to Austin, which these days is a lot, will go to Nixta and they'll take a picture and talk about how wonderful an experience they had there. And can you tell us just a little bit about what makes Nixta unique? So Nixta is the love child of my husband and I, who are also business partners. His name is Edgar Rico. His family grew up in Mexico and mine in Iran. So the restaurant is really a representation of us growing up as first-generation Americans. So foundationally, we put a lot of love into the masa. We get corn sourced from indigenous farmers outside of Oaxaca. Over a 15-hour period, we make we turn it from the kernel into masa into tortillas. And then that serves as a canvas for everything else. So whatever goes on those tacos and tostadas, we just kind of base it on like our childhood memories, things that we've learned growing up and cooking. Edgar's been a chef his whole life. So it's just a very welcoming space, unpretentious, just coming in, getting some good food and yeah, meeting some new people. Definitely. And you also have a shoulder which you wrote about for the New York Times. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So most of, it's mostly Mexican food. And then you also have this shoulder So during the pandemic, we had to really pivot and think about the options for dessert. At the time, we were only serving paletas, which are popsicles, which don't really travel in transit that well. Right. They'll get melted by the time you get home. So at one point, Edgar had was R&Ding some arroz con leche, which you find in various parts of Mexico. Once I tasted it, I was like, oh, we actually have something super similar. It's called Cholizard. I think it would be interesting to do a take on that, bring a little bit more like Persian influence into our cooking. So after a few rounds, we kind of dialed in the recipe, which, by the way, it's not your mamonis Cholizard at all. Like when I did show my mamonis, she was like, what's that pink stuff on top? So it is, I mean... It's a really creamy custard. It's a French style custard, though. So it's less chol, more zard. But it has all the like foundational components in there. It has cinnamon instead of rose water, which can be kind of polarizing. We opted to do strawberry powder instead, which gives it like a zing. Pistachios, a little bit of Malden salt on top for that like salty, savory component. But yeah, once my mom and I saw it, she's like, what's the pink stuff? <laughs> like, suratia chia. And yeah, I'm like, <laughs> it's our interpretation of Sholazard. But I think overall, it's a very nostalgic dish. Whether you're American, Mexican, Iranian, there's some kind of rice pudding dish in every culture. So we wanted to bring ours into the mix. Right. And then during the pandemic, Priya Krishna came and tried it. And she fell in love with it. And you wrote a piece in the New York Times, which we'll link to on this story so that everyone can read it. But the reason I wanted to talk to you particularly today, I've t- we've talked maybe a year or two ago about yes. doing an interview, but I'm glad we waited until now because you did a really nice post. You just recently went to Iran after 13 years and, uh, and had an experience there. And you wrote this post, which 
really, it brought tears to my eyes when I read it. And I was like, oh, we, we have to talk. So I was wondering if you could read it and then we'll go back into talking about your childhood growing up, your you know experience with the Iranian culture and the language growing up and what led you to this trip now at this point in time. So if you could please read us your, your post. Sure. Yeah, I'm probably going to cry too. I'm already like <laughs> tearing up. All righty. Iran is a stop in your tracks, devastatingly beautiful country. I've had a really hard time answering the question, how was it recently? Well, shit, I don't know. Waking up to complete silence in Qish, save for the rustling of date trees, and the occasional motorbike sputtering by was a memorable moment. Slowly climbing the jungles and Shomang from Rash to Masule, and seeing things transition from swampy rice farms to dewy forests, then snow-capped mountains with homes carved into the sides is a moment I soon won't forget. I discovered my Momoni's tea farm and smelled the jasmine-scented bushes that were eagerly anticipating the spring with buds fully forming. The arid lands of Yazd that form the first aqueduct and wind energy systems highlighted my Aga and Baba June's ancestral homes. It's a place where I learned where the Martin Biggies literally came from and almost peed my pants from a very spirited ride through the desert where an old 1980 Nissan Patrol defied gravity and snow-capped deserts. First time in over a decade. Every Iranian friend I've had has always had an Amma or Khaleh who expertly serves tea and serves you for too many plates of rice. If it were up to me, I'd be able to sit for hours with everyone to recount all the day-to-day moments. It's impossible to surmise a month into 10 photos, but these were some of my favorites. It's far from a perfect country, but I was constantly reminded of who I was while out there. Iranians are stoic and guarded when you first meet them. You don't really know where you stand with them, but within a few minutes... They've taken off their jacket or hat to gift to you. This quiet hospitality and generosity is something I deeply understand and respect. Visiting after 13 years was new to me in many ways, but realizing that the Persian Empire has been around for over 8,000 years was a staggering reminder that I literally know nothing. I'm just happy to have experienced it with the people that I love. There's a lot I could go into regarding the current state of affairs, but in the meantime, fix your lights! God damn, why is every single 500-watt light on? <laughs> well, energy is subsidized in the country, and so any any place, whether it was someone's house, a restaurant, whatever, it's like, I call them murder lights, where they're not like the warm, soft lights, but they're the like cold, high-voltage lights, and it's almost like a flex how many lights you can have on, and it's... It's not <gasps> tranquil. It's not calming. <laughs> yeah, completely. And you have a video in there where it's the perfect example of this, where your Mexican husband <laughs> is dancing with your cousin yeah. <laughs> and the lights are just full blast. They're playing music just off of a little iPhone, which like, oh, to me, that was like the perfect example of Iranian joy. Like you don't have to have. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like where we are, like in American society, you have to have the perfect conditions for mm-hmm. anyone to get up and dance. It has to be like, low lighting it has to be the perfect sound mm-hmm. system and then maybe one or two people will get up and dance in iran it's like no it doesn't matter like the lights are full blasting this music you can barely hear it but they're just going for it yeah. and i love that clip it's such a it was such his, a good clip it was his birthday and my khala she she's just this really adorable little woman but she's a super badass like 
she can look at any photo in Vogue and make that same outfit. Like she's this incredibly talented dressmaker, designer, really. And so her room is filled with like all these silks and all these textiles. And anyway, so she's also this very silly woman. And on her WhatsApp, she pulled up literally like 15 different versions of Tabaloda Moborak, like, and just kept playing them over and over and over. And I was like, all right, Edgar, keep going. She's playing another one. But he, and he, just, he was such a good sport. Yeah. 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 So we'll link to your your post so that people could see the photos. But there's so much to talk about in that little bit that you wrote, beautifully wrote, by the way. Um, so I'd love to get into it. But first, a little bit of context. So where did you grow up? Where were you born? Yeah, I was born in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is in the northwest region of the state. It's in the Ozarks. It's really beautiful. I was born there. I was raised in Springdale, which is an even smaller town. Really no Persians. At one point, one of my dad's friends moved from Iran. They were living there for a short short period of time. And yeah, pretty much wow. isolated. When did they move to the U.S.? Was it post-revolution or pre? Pre-revolution. Pre, so. Okay. Both of my parents moved, I think they were between like 19 and 20 years old. My dad had received a student scholarship and a visa to the U.S., so he, they both ended up moving here and have not returned. They have visited, but they right. obviously didn't move back. So you all were pretty isolated. Like, you have a lot of family in Iran, it looks like. Yeah, so growing up, I went and traveled every year until I was 10 years old. Every summer, three months, we would spend there. So... All of my extended family lived primarily in Tehran, but my grandmother's family's from Shomal in the north. We have some family in Esfahan in central Iran. But over the years, my family has either gotten selected through the lottery system, which feels like a very fake system. I would say about half of my family now lives between like Europe, Canada, and the US. So going back, it was actually less like less of a familial impact than I've had in the past. Okay, okay. And then what was your relationship with Iranian culture and the language growing up? Did you grow up speaking Persian? Yeah, so I have three other siblings. I have two older sisters and a younger brother. And in the household, it was just Farsi. So the first language I ever learned was Farsi. Both of my parents spoke in the house with my siblings who would speak it. I didn't learn how to speak English until I started school. So all of my teachers are like, "Uh, she's going to be kind of behind. They're like, don't worry, she'll like pick it up quickly. But it was, I think, important for both of my parents to have that. All that to say, like, I definitely have a lache. Like, anytime I go to Iran, they're like, oh, you sound super dahati, very like podunk. If you're just interacting with your parents, mostly you're having kind of the same types of conversations. Yes. And so I'm very conversationally fluent. And I can really understand but I am illiterate, I can't read or write. I guess they call it kitchen Persian, like, you know, kitchen Persian. Yeah, exactly. So I understand I know what's going on. But getting through things can be a little rocky at times. Just a brief message from Leila here. Many of you listening grew up in Iranian households but didn't grow up speaking the Persian language, or you're married to or dating an Iranian and would like to learn more, or you're just interested in Iranian culture and would like to understand it better. Whatever your reason, Chai and Conversation is the perfect way for you to begin learning Persian or to deepen your Persian language skills. You can sign up for a free 30-day trial of our courses on our website at chaiandconversation.com. We have conversational Persian lessons, 
lessons on reading and writing, and even on Persian poetry. So check it out, 30 days completely free. Get access to all of our language learning resources at chaiangconversation.com. And now, back to the interview. Did you feel Iranian growing up, or did you know what you were since there weren't anyone, wasn't anyone else like you around? I definitely felt... I always got clumped in into like Mexican or Central American because like Tyson Chicken is headquartered there, like Walmart is headquartered. So there was a lot of like industrial jobs. So that brought in a lot of like different types of brown people. I understood culturally and historically what I was. My parents are very good about, you know, always celebrating aid. We never ate pork in the house. Like education was a huge part of our upbringing. They talked about their upbringing in Iran and why using your mind is the most important thing over, you know, anything else. So that's the strongest tool or weapon that you'll ever have. But yeah, it was, I mean, at times isolating, but I never felt like I couldn't celebrate where my family comes from. Even though it was a small, like more rural town in Arkansas, everyone was very welcoming and very kind and curious. I mean, I would bring so many of my friends over to our house my mom was making like orma sabzi or some kind of like qayma and they w- they loved it. Like they'd never experienced anything like that before. And right. I think it was more of like a genuine interest and curiosity rather than like a shunning of it. Nice. I think this is important to talk about because, yeah, being a Texan Iranian, I feel like everyone's kind of more familiar with like the L.A. story or like, sure. you know, these big city stories. So I I also felt that like welcoming growing up in Dallas. And I think it's nice to let people know about that. It's not even though like we might have been more isolated, like people were really curious and really like kind. And even though it was like a really crazy time, you know, post-revolution, like post-hostage taking and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so now let's fast forward to now. So you were going back every summer, you said to Iran. So you were keeping up your language. You were really, you know, familiar with the culture. How come you haven't been back in 13 years? What's been going on the last 13 years? Yeah, the last time I went, I had just graduated from college. And during that period of time, those 10 years, it was really focused on, you know, finishing high school, finishing college. As you get older and as schedules change with your family, too, it just becomes less of a priority my sister was graduating, both of my sisters were graduating, I was focusing on other stuff. And I think they just wanted us to hone in on internships, extracurriculars, taking like collegiate level courses in the summer. So the focus sort of shifted more into let's get you all well equipped for your college years. Um, So it just took uh, that period in between. And then Once I graduated, I definitely had kind of an identity crisis in the way of like, you go to school for so long, you speak to your parents, you want to find like a lucrative career. What what did you major in? I was, I first started out in petroleum engineering, very Persian. (laughs) And then I, that's why I went to school in Oklahoma, because it was one of the only like four or five universities that provided that. After a semester, I was like, nah, that's not for me. So I ended up switching into finance with energy management as like kind of the backbone of it. And then I double majored in that in international business and then Spanish. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I spent part of my time in college in Spain. But yeah, so back to Iran, it just took a while. I was familiar with like financial firms and with like energy companies. And it just 
it didn't feel like the right path for me. I kind of saw my life flash forward. I'm like, do I want to live in Bartlesville, Oklahoma? Like, <laughs> and the answer was no. So I ended up just going back to Iran. It had been so long, spent three months there with my mom and one of my sisters and really just had some time to reflect and think about what next steps would look like. So when I got back to the U.S., I did what any responsible young adult does and lied to my parents and said I got a job in Austin <laughs> and a uh, sight unseen. I moved down here. I had just heard good things about wow. it, but I didn't really know a whole lot other than there was a potential for a lot of different types of, you know, career paths. Mm-hmm. So yeah, over time, moved here. Wow. So your last Iran trip was kind of a transition point and it kind of catapulted you into this new life here. Right. And, you know, I feel like every trip to Iran is so different because you're older. Hindsight is 2020. You are more observational. You kind of take time to appreciate things. Like for me, going at that time, as soon as you arrive in the airport, there's like 60 people there and you all are getting pulled in different cars and they're like, I'm your Amu so-and-so. And you're like, I hope so. Like, I don't remember you at all. It's been so long. Yeah. Um, But, you know, while you're there, it just honestly, it's just such a different pace of life. Like, it's not European exactly, but they do take the time to, you know, open up later, take those really long breaks and time to like take a short, you know, and relax. There is more of an emphasis on spending like quality time with each other and focusing on the present rather than what may happen in a few years. They're a lot better with that. Right. Um, and the chai breaks and yeah, really sitting and talking to each other. And have you felt like you can, this is off topic, but have you felt like you could kind of recreate that here? Like, I feel like Austin kind of has that as well. Yeah. Austin is full of transplants and they all want to, you know, find a way to fit find find their groove and find their like communities and i i felt that instantly here it's just really welcoming the spirit of the city has always been like be yourself right and that could be whoever it is that you want to be right. and that was very like empowering for me stepping in this space i mean i've kind of worked in a lot of different industries in the 13 years i've lived here but definitely the experience in iran kind of let me let my guard down a little and be like, even if I don't have it all figured out, it'll be fine. Like, nice. Yeah. You know, your family's going to be asking you what you're doing. Like, what are you doing? And you're like, Oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll figure it out. I guess. That's really nice. And I've heard actually that people who come from Esfahan, they walk around the lake and they're like, this is the closest thing that we have to the river in Esfahan is yeah. like our town lake, you know, it's totally dry right now. In Esfahan, you went and saw it. Oh, I yeah. Know. Okay. Now let's get back to it. So you just went on this trip now. So first of all, September, we we are talking right now, it's end of March of 2023. So September 2022 is when Mass Amini was killed and everything, you know, got upended in Iran. When did you plan this current trip that you went on? So every year, um, Edgar and I like make a concerted effort to like take genuine time off and go somewhere, disconnect and like kind of re-energize. And so we knew that this January, we wanted to go to Iran. So we started planning, I think, probably in June, maybe even earlier, because we knew it would. Okay, so I guess we got married in June. So then we started in July. Because I have like dual citizenship, it was a little bit easier for me. But 
you know, like we had talked about before, you either need a travel visa or you need to know one of the big dogs. <laughs> Otherwise, like you can apply for a family visa. And if you have a spouse, you can apply for that. So we actually got married a little bit sooner than we would have otherwise. Mm. Um, so we got married in June and then July we started the process. And it took about five months, I guess. Uh, November we received the visa officially and it was definitely a pause. I had a lot of apprehensions. You know, you're reading a lot. You're seeing a lot. The country is seemingly in unrest. There's volatility there. So it took us a while to actually pull the trigger on purchasing tickets. Right. So we got like fully refundable tickets in the event that like, it's just all a shitstorm, you know? Right. So What airline did you get? Uh, Emirates. Okay. Yeah. So fortunately... We were able to fly business class, which <laughs> nice. now everything is spoiled and I can never fly yeah. like normal. But Especially Emirates. The bed was like, the quality of it was almost nicer than the bed I have here. So I'm like, okay. It took us a little while to really commit to it. I, in my mind, I just didn't want Edgar's first experience to feel like the country itself and the people are so beautiful. I didn't want that to be tarnished by, you know, what the current situation in the country is I feel like protective over the country and over the culture and the people and I felt like I had to be the gatekeeper to that he was just like let's do it you know let's go my dad kind of same thing he's like I'm not gonna get you all in trouble like I'm here to protect you guys I was in close communication with my family in Iran and sort of doing like a week-by-week assessment for them by the time mid-December hit, they were like, a lot of things have quieted down. So the protests that were happening were very sparse and geographically very far from one another. So they were primarily happening in universities, in rural towns. This is in December or when you went? Both. Both. Okay. So there were definitely still protests happening, but the amount and the magnitude had significantly decreased. As soon as you walk into the airport, I call them the homies. Not that, like, I like them at all. They're actually the worst. Yeah. Like, Khomeini and Khomeini. Right. Like, their photos are everywhere. They're, like, in every corner staring at you from everything. And I was like, oh, Edgar, welcome to the homies. Like, (laughs) they're going to be watching us the entire time. But ultimately, what gives me hope is that I had never seen women without hijab out in the streets. Like, ever. Yeah. Ever in the, like, in probably the... Now, 12 times I've been to Iran, like, had never experienced that. Even in the airport, there were, like, women taking off when my aunt had, she was in the U.S. for a second visiting her kids. She went back, right, this was in October. She and my cousin, like, took off their hijab, like, immediately. Wow. One of the guards was like, you should put that back on. She's like, what are you going to do about it? Like, (laughs) like, there's definitely this... Defiance? Defiance, for sure. And it's happening everywhere. Like, I didn't take off my hijab in the airport because I just had my mom's, like, voice in the back of my head, like, don't do anything stupid. But, yeah, in the airport, many women without it on, out in the streets. Wow. So yeah, so I I was excited to talk to you because yeah, we can see images from there and I've been seeing, you know, anytime there's a video out of Iran, I like look and it looks like half of the women don't have hijab on, but then you don't know like when the video was taken or like where, you know, if it's recent, if it's not. So I was like, oh, you've like made contact, like you've actually, you're like straight source now. So I'm excited to hear from you, like how 
things feel like? Does it feel different right now? Does it feel and like even back then, even when things were pretty bad, I also haven't been back since 2009 since Ahmadinejad. So before Ahmadinejad, it felt like things were getting better. Like each year, you know, the, the hijab was going an inch lower, you know, mm-hmm. and it it felt a little bit more free. But I think it's like kind of clamped down since then. It's gotten a lot more extreme. So, yeah, tell me, like, what how does it feel when you go over there? How are the streets like? And, and what cities did you go to? Everywhere you see Zan Zandigi Azadi, like everywhere, wow. right? Like women are saying it, men are saying it, like everyone's on board. Like regardless what generation it was, wow. I would kind of make it a point to ask every person, like, what has your experience been like with this? Like, what have you seen? Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel like things will change? And the overwhelming majority was like, it will happen, but it's going to take a very long time. Right. Like the country itself has seen many revolutions over many, many, many centuries. And so they will get pushed out and things will happen. Any metropolitan city, you're going to see kind of the more like progressive, liberal, more of the like stark contrast of, okay, what women are wearing and what they're not wearing. It trickled down to some of the smaller towns. So we we started the journey in Tehran. So it's a city of about between 8 to 10 million people. I would say... 95% of the young women were like, we're not wearing hijab. Wow. But it was not like, if you were, it wasn't ever judgmental. Like, right. it was just, you know, do what you want to do. Like, my body, my choice, exactly, but a different, you know, color, different lens. We saw in Tehran, big metropolitan city, saw a lot of that progression, which was, for me, like a very positive sign. Tehran was like our home base. So that's where my mom and his house is where we were staying. But we didn't like explore the city that often. The t- traffic is awful. Right. One of the reasons we went is an R&D trip for our next project. Our next restaurant Ooh. will be Persian. So, you know, we're exploring like the breads of Iran. So the Sangaks, the Komaj, the Barbari, the Lavash, all of that. So we started in Tehran. And then from there, we flew down to Qesh. It's really beautiful, like UNESCO World site, just natural wonders. The women there are very colorful. Literally, the like garb that they wear is super colorful. They wear this, it almost looks like a Phantom of the Opera mask. It's like not even half of the face, like a quarter just covers the eyes with like a little beak on the nose. Right. So they're, I feel like their culture is more tribal. There were some women not wearing hijab. They were primarily coming from other cities because there's a lot of tourists that go there. There were some women like without hijab, but more so like free flowing culture. Right. Then we went to Bandar Abbas, which is a port city that was like pretty still like not like locked up, but the women were definitely more covered up. Right. You would see here and there like women not wearing it, but it was not very common. From there, we flew back to Tehran. Well, rather, once we were in Bandar Abbas flying back to Tehran, we actually met like the basketball team of Iran. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, Edgar knows like four words in Farsi. He knows like inshallah. He knows like salam, sobe bekher, and I don't know, like merci. Anyway, Which, I just... Hold on. With yeah. my audience, they're going to say, that's Arabic, French, and oh. he doesn't know any... Anyway, it's... Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Um, but he did look Arab. Like at uh-huh. one point he was wearing... I always forget to say like dashiki or dashiki, whatever. It, I call it a man mumu. It's like the man dress uh-huh. with like a turban and he wore the glasses. So everyone thought he was Arab. 
Yeah, it was a whole situation. Um, <laughs> so I just see him in the middle of these like seven feet tall men. I'm like, what is going on? Yeah. We let them know that we're going to start our journey down to like Esfahan and uh-huh. Yaz. And one of the players is like, my family's from Kashan. I'm going to like put you all in touch, nice. which he did. So we like, when we started driving down, we stopped in Rom, which is where all the men go to get their religious cleric training right so right. there was like there's no women without hijab on go down to kashan super like super sweet family they met us like on the highway they drove us to like a really beautiful garden and wow. showed us like an old civilization and then went to their favorite shabbat place and wow. like got a shabbat and then went to their house and they had a whole like and wow yeah i cooked us which just, speaking of shabbat like iran's kind of had a food revolution in the past few years right and yeah like the shabbats are becoming big with shabbat is like uh, how do you translate that i would say it's like a syrup yeah, so you can get like orange blossom syrup or like sour cherry syrup and yeah. then there are all these like different shabbats but that's like become a really popular thing to do artisanal shabbats for example right. yeah and it's not as like syrupy as the u.s it's more you know for people who don't know Sharbat, it's very it's almost like a watery consistency, but it's flavored and it's like sugary and delicious. Yeah, it's subtle with, though. Yeah. It's not like syrup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we stopped there and it was just, I don't know, so lovely. The family, they're like so close. The two sons, they also play basketball and his favorite player was Steph Curry. Their English is like minimal, but they're <laughs> trying to communicate with Edgar. The dad builds these just insanely ornate beautiful doors it's him and his family him and his dad have been doing it for generations and so he took us on a little tour to the bazaar he's like i made this door and i made this door and i made this ceiling and wow iran is a birthplace of geometry and you see that in all the architecture it's just it's stunning so we go from kashan drive down to isfahan isfahan is obviously a more liberal city too like it's a city of artisans everyone is a rug maker or they write poetry or books, or they do like the miniatures, which are like the small hand painted. I I think often what you see in like Persian gifts that are given, especially like the you know artistic side, they'll come from Isfahan. Right, like, right, right. That's kind of it's like these... the Oaxaca. Yeah, exactly. So spent some time there. A woman that we met at Qesh, she was visiting her friends who had this restaurant. I will say like Iranians are not very adventurous when it comes to food, right. like. There's so little external influence that they like what they like. Right. There's no like real, you know, there's no food media. There's no like food competition. So everyone's sort of kind of making the same thing. And it's delicious. Don't get me wrong. But Edgar, I think at one point was like, (laughs) what's the deal? Right. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought of it from that perspective that there's not like outside influence really. So the one restaurant I went to, it was actually this husband wife duo. They moved from Tehran just to have like, a quieter, a simpler life. Their kitchen was literally like a house stove and like, you know, home appliances. And when we walked in, there was like five of us. We're like, oh my gosh, there's so many people. But <laughs> the food they made was like kind of a cross section of like the region, which is, you know, closer to Southeast Asia, India, Saudi Arabia. So those like influences in different parts of Iran, they kind of like made innovative Iranian food, I think. Ah, okay. So their friend was visiting from Esfahan, Eli, Elahe, and she was like, hey, come come visit me in Esfahan, I'll be, I'll be there. So she showed us around, took her to all our little spots, took her to her favorite rug shop, um, talked to the guys there. The thing about like Iranians is that 
they will tell you exactly what they're thinking at all times. Like the rug shop owners, they were talking about like the liberation of the woman's body, like Ah. not just what they're wearing, but honestly, like their promiscuity and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And really got into some detail about that. And like, you know, there's sort of a challenge too about the way in which they go about like dating and relationships. And, you know, the, the previous time I'd been to Iran and I was in Tehran that my cousins were very fuzul for sure. Very like mischievous. They like took us to the street. It was called flirt street. They called it that. Uh And it would just be like, women hanging around and guys in like nicer cars and they would just kind of like flirt there or maybe they'll like get in the car and like kiss but (sighs) I don't know it was like kind of a strange (sighs) dipping toes into breaking out of the normal style of uh, Hasagari which is like it's like an engagement ritual like yeah like going and asking for a hand in marriage yeah exactly there's like dowries involved and all of that so it's sort of like breaking away from that. He had some, you know, opinions about it. He was saying that, you know, obviously business has gone down with all of the sanctions on the country. He was like, yeah, four years ago, we had like German tourists and French tourists and American tourists. So everyone in Isfahan speaks like multiple languages. Right. They're speaking all of those and like 15 others because it's a big tourist city. So once that got pulled, like that really impacted you know, their day-to-day, you know, economics, their their survival. We spent, like, quite a bit of time in that rug shop just drinking tea and more tea and more tea and more tea. Uh (laughs) Uh, But there's also this openness of, you know, I want you to know what's going on and I want to share my experience. So going back to that, like, you know, I call her my cousin, but she's not, (laughs) she's like a, maybe a third cousin or a cousin of my parents, I'm not sure. So we call her ZZ. And she and her husband are probably in their like 50s, 60s. And at one point I was asking them, you know, what are you making of all this? What are you seeing? Because she's like a pretty buttoned up woman. And even she was like taking her scarf down, which was like shocking to me, honestly. Yeah. She was like, you know, we knew what it was like pre-revolution. A lot of Iranians and the way another one of my cousins described it, she's a professor at a university. And she was saying at the time, some of the professors were detained or whatever at the time because they were speaking out. They're like, the Quran, everything is based on like Arab culture. Like we identify as Persians, Mm. like the Persian civilization and predates like the Quran. And that's what we're trying to say. Like, let us have the choice to do whatever, because this is like a new imposition that we've had. She's like, you know, students would be taken. There was like 50 students who were missing for a while. They were in jail or they were taken elsewhere. There's a period, I don't know who threw it, whether it was like protesters or police, but they threw some kind of gas in. She was like out for a week because she had a hard time breathing. Oh, like, wow. So I think there is definitely, again, to your point of defiance, but traveling around the country went from Esfahan to Yazd, which is, you know, one of the oldest cities in Iran. My family's from Mehriz. It's where the Madon Biggies came from. But there it's like, it is in the midst of a desert. And even there you would see like little moments of that defiance. Right. Which I was like, okay, so, you know, Noru's age just happened and it's all about like rebirth, growth, little, you know, things that may have been dead in the winter are like regrowing. And I think 
that's how Iran is. Like there's been such a long period of time where there's been like this suppression and you're starting to see like the things sprouting out yeah. and just, you know, having that rebirth. So hopeful seeing from there, seeing Tehran. We went to Shomal Rasht um, in the north. Like there is definitely a unified spirit, no matter who I spoke to. Like I, I would be shocked when I would assume like I see this like older man in his 80s. He's like, San Zendigu Azadi. Like, wow. they're all saying the same thing. Wow. So, so what do you mean that they say it? Like, literally, they say that? They yeah. say San Zendigu Azadi when they pass you in the street or something? Or I mean, it's mostly like when I'm having conversations and we talk to like, so, wow. you know, Iranians are friendly. They're like, right. I said they're stoic and guard in a way. It's like, you kind of can't tell. Like, we kind of have a poker face when you f- first meet us. Right. But it's like, they want to talk and they will talk. Like, gotcha. We so no were, one's afraid of talking. No, no one's afraid of okay. talking. Like, especially, and I think a part of it is too, like, I truly feel like Iranians have always loved Americans. Right. And especially Edgar has this, like, we call it a baby face, but he's just <laughs> got these really kind eyes and yeah. he's very disarming. And, you know, a lot of them are like wanting to speak in English and wanting to, you right. know, interact with him. They're like, it's been over four years since we've seen an American tourist. Like, <laughs> you know, they were like very willing to give information. And it wasn't like there was one instance where I saw one of the vans that I had read about. Okay. But it didn't stop anyone from doing anything. Okay. And and do they know about us like out in the diaspora? Like, how do they feel about the diaspora support? I feel like being here that we're more unified than ever. Do they feel that? Do they talk about that? I think they know that people are unified in it. They're unhappy with governments not stepping in and saying anything. Wow. Like, I mean, it's going to... What is the U.S. stand to gain from it, right? Like, right. probably nothing because they're... At this point, like, it's been such cold relations between the two. But I think they were hopeful that, like, this is a humanitarian crisis and, like... Let's kind of put aside certain things to really address this and figure actually, things out. I remember back when I used to go, like when Bush was in power, and they were like, "We just hope that Bush will come in here and just like free us." And I was like, "What are y'all talking?" Like at the time, I was like, "What? What?" And now, like, I, I'm sure it's like tenfold that. Right. You know, I, I never understood it. I was like, "Did y'all see what happened to Iraq? Did you see what happened happened to Afghanistan?" But I think people are just like very desperate. Right. Yeah. There are things. I mean. Most of the people feel very strongly that the imams, the people in power, the clerics, whomever, the Khamenei's and Khomeini's of the world, like, they're outsiders. They don't feel like you guys are from Iran. You don't wow. understand, like, our standards. Like, we're we're not this, like, backwards country. In some ways, they've nationalized a lot of things where day-to-day living expenses are pretty inexpensive. Okay. Like, energy is subsidized, school is subsidized, which it is pretty hard to get into school, like... That's why there's kind of a brain drain and other people go to other countries. There's limited spaces for the amount of qualified talent that there is there. Natural gas, petroleum, like to fill up, it'd be like three cents. Right. What is it like with the sanctions, though? Like, could your family buy food? Like, what is what's going on with that? To be clear, like there is like an insane amount of inflation. Right. Things are really expensive in the standards of like Iranian people living there. There's no cap on their currency and what's occurring with that they're able to buy everything that they need but there's little caveats to it for example like 
with phones. They either have to get someone abroad who can like have an unlocked phone, but they do have like other types. It's just not Apple. Recently, which is something different from before, is that you have to have like a VPN and then another VPN. There's like two that you have to use for like encryption because the government is throttling the internet certain times of the day or if they get word that something's happening your phone just stops working and that happened for you my phone didn't work at all oh wow Um, but edgar's phone did work and my aunt had another phone for my dad to use there would be certain museums that would be like closed down for a long time because they're like this is a national museum we're worried that like protesters would come this was different from before that would just just be like closed right and it wouldn't reopen or yeah your phones would just shut off at certain points like my aunt would be like oh well yeah i don't know like right my my internet's not working right now right so, right yeah i mean that's definitely the the surveillance part is definitely a part of the country like they have cameras Ooh. everywhere like like literally in the most remote highways that you're driving through they ticket a lot of people but the cops actually if you stop over they don't get out of their car like you go to their car (laughs) and then at one point like edgar was speeding we got pulled over my dad's like come and talk to the cops i'm like i'd rather not yeah um but they were like super cool okay and like here have some gas right and like let us on our way i'm like oh okay that was weirdly easy to get out of but right those cops are way different than because there's different levels of like policing they're sort of like the lowly people no one like respects them will stop right, right. Well, they'll like give them like they'll fush like they'll, right they'll cuss at them they'll say things like get out of my way like you're literally trash and you're like oh my god like <laughs> you the, can't do that yeah like it's tongue. Like yeah. the tongues in Iran, they're like so fiery. Right. And they're all on edge. Like everybody's yeah. on edge. Well, okay. So now after this experience and like having come back, like what do you, has it changed anything for you? And do you have any advice for us in the diaspora? Like what do we do at this point? Is what we're doing helping? Like should we be more vocal? Should we go over there? What is it that we need to do? Overall takeaway was slowly and steadily a revolution is happening. And I don't foresee it stopping. I think there are people leading things that will continue, like, questioning and challenging the current systems. What we could be doing here is just, I mean, continued support. Like, so we just did a Cook for Iran event, which, like, raises awareness and visibility around it, provides services for, like, trauma victims, whether they're there or here. And I think... History is like a pendulum. It goes, you know, from one end to the other end. And the U.S. and Iran has like a very complicated but a very long history together. I think by like sharing our stories, by, you know, not hiding behind things, by creating that visibility and that voice, like it's only going to be helpful for others to hopefully listen to something like this and say like, okay, what, what can I do to like empower myself and others to, to do the little bit or the, you know, broader impact that I can. I don't have like specific action points, but I think just be aware and be empathetic to what's going on and seeing in your periphery, what sort of things you can be doing that you think would be helpful to the cause. 
Right. And I think like there's so many Iranians. So you grew up in Arkansas and like there's a lot of us in general or a lot of us in Austin even like we don't really have a big community here where like Iranians get together and like you're you say you're opening up an Iranian restaurant. So that's going to be really exciting. But I feel like a lot of us are doing really good work in isolation and I'm excited for this next phase for us to like come together more and like have these community events and like support each other more and get together. And because there's a lot of like good work that's happening, you know, like I said in the beginning, like Nixta is one of the best restaurants in Austin. And it's so cool that it's co-owned by an Iranian. You yeah. Know? And there's a lot of examples of that, of, of such good work happening. And, you know, when you go to Nixta, it's not like overtly Iranian or whatever, but there's a lot of Iranian elements to it. Mexican and Iranian culture are very similar too in a lot of respects. But, you know, feeling really welcome there and like the types of flavors, the type of food, and in general, like the love of food is like such an Iranian thing, you know? So I feel like I'm, I'm very excited for this next phase for us all to come together and really like show the power of the diaspora and the power of community. Yeah, we're yeah. here representing. I yeah. mean, you just got to hopefully, you know, see others leading the way and get inspiration from others. And that's all it is. I think Iranian people are some of the dopest people around. Like <laughs> we're we have like a very specific humor we're just open-handed with everything. That's the spirit of the restaurant. That's how I wanted to feel. Like, whoever you are, you're welcome. And we're just so sassy and fiery, you know? Like, there's <laughs> yeah. there's nothing, there's nobody who has a better time than Iranians. Like, you can start a party anywhere, anytime. Like, you're in the park and it's middle of the day. Like, exactly. you have, you're packing, like, a whole tea set and everything else. But it's just this really beautiful thing. Exactly. Or I have a story where it was 10 o'clock at night in Iran and this big party broke out and everyone was singing and dancing. And then they were like, and the police came in. Actually, it was like midnight. The police came and they were like, hey, quiet down. It's midnight. We got, and everyone was like, oh, the police came only in Iran. Like, this sucks. Like, why do we have to live in a country where we can't sing and dance outside? And I was like, y'all, I'm from Austin, Texas. Like, first of all, there's no one in the park. Second of all, there's a 10 o'clock curfew. Yeah. And third of all, again, even if there wasn't a curfew, no one is in the park singing and dancing. Like, Oh, my gosh. Everyone's like yelling, talking. It's like they're talking, but they're yelling. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. I don't know. We're a very special breed. But yeah, just proud of what we've done so far and excited to see what the future holds. Exactly. And is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Or is that a good wrap? That's a good wrap. Yeah, we're going to work on a book Ooh. together about Mexico, Iran, and the convergence of those two cultures oh, living fun. in America. So, Oh, yeah. I can't wait because I talk about that all the time. I mean, Mexico is so similar to Iran. If anyone wants to experience Iran without going to Iran, go to Mexico City. You're surrounded by mountains, the warmness of the people, just everything is very, very similar. Yeah. And so how do people find you if they want to? And, you know, here in Austin or elsewhere. You can find me physically at Nixa Taqueria. I'm there <laughs> a lot. Yes. If you want to hit me up, I'm super supportive of anyone trying to do anything, really. I know that sounds very broad and ambiguous, but you can hit me up. My Instagram is Sarah Martin Biggie. Yeah, which we'll link to on the show yes. notes for this episode. Yeah. So you don't have to remember that. Yeah, so either of those ways you can find me. Our restaurant is at Nixa Taqueria. Sounds good. And we'll link to her Instagram post and the New York Times story and to Nixta and everyone if you're coming to Austin, which a lot of people are these days, definitely go to Nixta. And you have to wait in line a little bit, but it moves pretty quickly. So, Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me today. That was a lot of fun. And uh, thank you for everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to the interview. Like I said before, 
If you're interested in learning the Persian language or more about the Iranian culture, there's no better place than through our courses. You can check those out for 30 days for free on our website at chaiinconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. Nelly Khosusi edited this podcast, Babak Rajabi wrote and performed our theme music, and I'm your host, Leila Shams. Until next time, Khuda Hafiz. Hafiz.